Okay, so we will continue with uh, Shanti Deva's chapter eight on meditation, where he uh, socks it to us, you know, and doesn't let up. Okay, so uh, like I said last week, this isn't the teaching I would give to people first coming to Buddhism, but it's a very important teaching. And uh, in Precious Garland, Nagarjuna said that if we, uh, you know, if we don't understand the foulness of the body, how can we realize emptiness, you know? And, uh, and the reason for that is the foulness of the body is an evident phenomena. We can apprehend that with our senses. It doesn't take logic and reasoning. Okay, but emptiness is much more difficult because it's not an evident phenomena, it's a hidden phenomena. Um, so that's why it's important, you know, to study this section on the nature of, of the body, uh, which fits in very well with the, uh, in the four establishments, the first one, the four establishment of mindfulness on the body. Okay. So just maintain the context of this in your mind. And, um, and if your mind is reacting against it, uh, just look at what your reaction is, you know, because uh, most of us grew up in the age of the body is beautiful. You know, there was a certain period of, you know, like history of, you know, oh, the body is sinful and you have to torture it to overcome all of our bestial, you know, whatever's, yeah. Um, and so the body's evil. And this, so Buddhism is not saying that, you know, that is not what is going on here. It's just, let's look realistically at what the body is. And let's look at how our mind, especially in terms of sexual desire, amplifies and hallucinates based on the body, you know. And if you don't think it's a hallucination, then ask yourself, you know, I mean, uh, dogs have lust for other dogs' bodies, and pigs have lust for other pigs' bodies. And, uh, you know, if you've ever been in the street when dogs are making it, I mean, I've been in Dharamsala and all over India, you know, and dogs are copulating on the street. One time I even saw pigs. No, I didn't see, see the pig copulating. They were just walking around a stupa. Uh, you know, but it, you know, we look at that and we go kind of, well, that's the same kind of mind we have. And, you know, that really creates a hindrance to the practice when the mind is always looking outside and, uh, you know, kind of assessing people according to their looks and their sexual attraction and figuring out who you want to talk to and who you don't want, don't want to talk to based on that. And um, if, if you haven't seen that in yourself yet, look a little bit. It's there, okay? We're human beings with bodies. 
you know, we accept that and that's there. Um, but the thing is, are we going to be a slave to the body in general? And are we going to be a slave to sexual attraction, which completely takes us, you know, talk about la-la land. It's kind of la-la land supreme, isn't it? Yeah. How to hallucinate without taking drugs. Um Okay, but we grew up in an era where, oh, you know, we don't like what the church is saying about the body is sinful and evil, and the body is beautiful. I mean, this was a big 60s, 70s thing. Yeah, the body is beautiful, and, you know, enjoy your own body and sleep with whoever you want, and, you know, women's liberation, yes, go around, and, you know, whatever. So... um you know, we grew up in that climate. We probably bought into it in, to some extent. But it's good now to look at it and say, okay, that was the way of thinking then. How much of it is true? Okay. And so the Buddhism is not saying the body is bad and the body is evil and the body is sin. That is not. So if your mind is bringing that into this whole thing, then you're carrying with you false views that you learn from another tradition. And so just be aware of that and and recognize that they're false views. That's not what the Buddha is talking about. Okay? Some of you look kind of grim. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm bursting that bubble. That's my job. <laughs> Okay, so let's uh, start off by imagining the Buddhist Bodhisattvas in the space in front. Looking at us with acceptance and compassion. and ourselves surrounded by all sentient beings. And here we imagine all sentient beings uh, paying attention to the Buddha Dharma Sangha, wanting to generate bodhicitta and the wisdom realizing emptiness. So we don't think of them in their usual distracted states or afflictive states, but uh, with earnest receptivity to the Buddhist teachings. Let's generate our motivation. And in order to 
have a motivation uh, aspiring for full awakening for the benefit of all beings, we first have to aspire for our own liberation. And in order to do that, we have to see the disadvantages of cyclic existence. Because as long as we see cyclic existence as wonderful, or at least as not too bad, then we won't have uh, any energy to practice, to generate bodhicitta, or to realize emptiness. And one of the uh, ways in which we come to see samsara as unsatisfactory is uh, really taking a good look at how we are bound to a body that gets old and sick and dies and how we can not control that. We can modify it, but there's no way to prevent illness completely, to prevent aging, to prevent death. And... Those are all based on the body. And so the body is seen as part of samsara, not something to be um, fancied and as a source of pleasure. So consider that for a moment and develop a, a wish to be free of samsara, where we take these kinds of bodies under the influence of afflictions and karma. And then seeing that all other ordinary beings are attached to having this kind of body too, and how they revolve in cyclic existence, craving to have this kind of body, develop compassion for them, and aspire for full awakening in order to be able to guide them on the path to liberation and full awakening.
Yeah, so this this meditation on the body, it can be a real difficult one for people um, because we've been socialized such. And so this is a process. We're really starting to investigate how we've been conditioned by our family and our body and, and our, our society about how to think about our body, okay? Because a lot of this conditioning... We don't even see as conditioning. It was, it's been so much a part of our growing up that we think this is just the way it is. You know, we, we've never stopped and said, oh, is this accurate? Is this beneficial? Yeah. So just if you start with the beneficial side, yeah, uh, which it might be a little bit easier is all the attention that uh, is put on the body in this culture. What effect does it have on our mental happiness and our physical happiness? Yeah. And especially now when you have so much media about how you should look, what you should wear, and so on, yeah. And especially where nobody actually looks like what you see in the media because it's all been uh, airbrushed, yeah. So we're striving to be something that we cannot become and criticizing ourselves because we can't become it. And then that brings, you know... Uh, dissatisfaction with self, it brings a low self-esteem, yeah. and a lot of problems like that because we're setting a bar about, you know, who we think we should be. And the bottom line, especially for women, but for men too, is what do we you know, and especially we talked about dating apps last time. You know, what is the thing when you make yourself into a product that you're trying to get other people to buy? And this is not only in sexual relationships, but even you're looking for a job. You have to look, have a certain appearance and a, you know, certain age and things like that. What, you know... How much do we conform to that? What does that do to our mind? Yeah. Where we're always trying to be young and beautiful and sexy. Yeah. Where, and here especially for women, this is really horrible. But your, our ultimate value is our sex appeal. Yeah. That's the bottom line. You know, you can be intelligent, you can have degrees, whatever, but you have to be attractive. And if you're not attractive, you know, then so what? Okay. And the men, too, have to be attractive in a certain way. They have different criteria. Okay. Yeah. 
So the men don't have to wear quite as much makeup, and it's okay if their skin isn't so nice. But they have other things, you know, the way they stand, the way they look, you know, to show that they're attractive. And, uh, you know, and so this just permeates how we look at other sentient beings and how we see ourselves. Yeah? And uh, I think it's quite damaging. And it starts when, it's ve- when we're very young. Yeah? Uh, when I was staying with my brother and his family many years ago, when my niece was, oh, she was only, one of my nieces was only about, I don't know, five or six, seven at the most. And, and she said, why do you wear the same clothes every day? You know, at that age already, you're not supposed to wear the same clothes every day. Yeah. You're supposed to look, you know, wear nice clothes that change, you know, that show that you're attractive, da, 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 you know, at that age. Yeah. And also, I remember watching my nephew when, oh, he was really little, four or five mimicking some uh, teenage song with some quite sexual gestures in it. You know, and he just did that because that's what he saw. Yeah, so that influences the mind and makes us think in a certain way. And we aren't even aware that we are being conditioned, that our mind is being messed up with, messed up. Yeah. And we just go along with it and we adopt that criteria in terms of judging other people. Yeah. And so it's not just how they look and what their body is, but it's also what they represent. You know, if we're looking for partners, what they represent. You know, because if you have a, an attractive partner, it boosts your status. Okay? Yeah. And it's, I find it so interesting that we find, that we have all these older men. Yeah. Who do they marry? Young models. Not just young women. Young models. Yeah, because that ups their status. Okay. And for her sake, I mean, what, what's her selling point? Her, her looks. And how long does she have that look, those looks? And what's she getting out of it? Well, she gets a sugar daddy. Yeah. So, you know, is that how we want to be? Where we just look at people like that and where we try and present ourselves like that. Yeah. So th- there's really a lot to it and a lot to unpack. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's good to, I think, take some time and look at it, especially, um, you know, it's amazing what happens during our teenage years. You know, so often, have you noticed we come back to high school? And what we learned in high school when we were nutty, crazy adolescents, 
yeah, and grew up to be nutty, crazy adults who were more diplomatic in hiding our nutty craziness. Okay, but so much of this happened when we were adolescents, you know, and where the group thing is, let's look at the people who are uh, the idols in society. Yeah, sports stars, movie stars. Okay, and that's what we aspire to be when we're in high school. Or maybe, you know, you don't want to do that. You want to be an astrophysicist and, you know, but you still have to be attractive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're good. Or you want to be an astronaut. You have to look good, even though they, you have this whole thing on you. Okay. <laughs> but, um, and to really look at how that has influenced the way we think and how we judge and evaluate other people by it. Okay? So, here in this chapter, Shanti Deva has been talking about the body in terms of sexual attraction, because sexual attachment is probably our one of our chief attachments. Yeah? Um, because it involves multiple senses. It's not just one sense. It's not just, yeah, multiple things. Um, and because when that kind of attachment overtakes our mind, it, you know, it not only influences our meditation, but it look, it influences what we're thinking about and how we look at things in the break time. Okay. So you go to a retreat and you start assessing, looking at everybody else and who's attractive and who's not and who you want to do your walking meditation near and so that you might chance and talk to that person and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so because it's such a distraction to meditation, it comes in this a chapter about meditation. And remember, when we talk about meditation, we're not just talking about the session. Yeah, whenever we have meditation instruction, they always talk about the break time, what to do in the break time. Because what you do in the break time between sessions influences your meditations per se. Yeah, and so you may have some kind of... uh clarity in your meditation. But when you get out, if you start fantasizing about food and sex and what you're gonna where you're gonna go on vacation and start making traveling plans and uh, doing all these kinds of things, then when you sit down to meditate, what's going on in your mind? You know, you, you just continue the same distracted thing. Yeah. So, uh, so that's why sexual attachment is, is talked of here. Okay. So he's doing it in terms of ancient Indian culture, which is actually not so ancient and not limited to India. Okay. Um, I explained last time that even nowadays, if, if you read an Indian paper, they will have, 
uh, in the classified, a whole section on families looking for spouses for their, um, their sons and daughters. Okay. And many societies, uh, you know, in this world, even now, there's arranged marriages. Okay. So that's the kind of context that, that is being spoken of. But it, it doesn't matter arranged marriages or not, you know, how we operate in, uh, you know, in looking for a spouse, or even you're not looking for a spouse, you're looking for a hookup. How we operate is, is very similar. Okay. So just to remind us where we were. Okay. Um, so we'll start with 39. Both, both in this world and the next, desires give rise to great misfortune. Now we hear about that. What do I mean desire doesn't give rise to me? Great misfortune? Desire gives me energy to pursue what I want and I get the happiness that I want because I got what I want. Yeah. And, and, you know, so Shandy Devis says this, and we said, what's this guy talking about? Okay. Desire is good. It motivates me. Otherwise, I'm just going to sit there and go, duh. Well, yeah, if we don't know much about Dharma, we may just sit there and be bored. Okay. But if we have some awareness of our situation in samsara and of the possibility of true cessations and true paths growing in our mind, then, you know, um, desire seems to be a hindrance to that because we realize that there's an alternative to running around like a chicken without our head chasing our desires. Yeah, which we've been doing since uh, beginningless time. So if you have some feeling for, you know, and belief in multiple rebirths, you know, what have we been doing beginninglessly? Chasing our desires. And where has it gotten us? Well, here's a chance to, and I recommend in your meditation, re- taking a really good look at your life. And what has chasing your, your desires, you know, play this, remember the whole scene, how you want something. And this could start out in general with your desires, money, or, you know, it doesn't have to be sex. Start out with money or prestige or, you know, a new stereo. This is what people wanted in the day, age of the dinosaurs. Now, now you want new iPads and new iPods and smartphones that Okay, but, um, and the thrill, you know, the interest when you first have desire, the thrill of pursuing it, the wonder when you get it, and then what happens? You've got it. And then the stress of maintaining it. And what happens when whatever it was you were seeking doesn't seem so new and exciting anymore. You're used to it. You have it. You know it so well. It becomes boring. And you want more excitement in your life. 
So what do you do when you want more excitement? Well, you drop whatever it was that you had, and then you take off in a new direction, seeking more and better, more and better. Okay? So just, you know, watch in in your own life. Yeah, don't take what I'm saying as true. Look in your own life experience and and see how this plays out. And if running after your desires, worldly desires, sense pleasure desires, seeking external objects and people to fulfill the whole that we feel inside of ourselves, see if, if that has ever worked. Yeah. I mean, it may seem to work for a while, but then, as we say, the honeymoon is over. And what happens then? So, uh, yeah, just just to watch. Look at the lives of people around you. Uh, see how things play out. Okay, so both in this world, so that's just in this world. Then, if we start thinking of what we do to fulfill our desire, okay, the last two lines in verse 39 explains that. In this life, killing, bondage, and flaying. Okay, so we lie to people, we steal, we kill, we do all sorts of things to get what we want. We talk behind people's back, we ruin their reputation, we compete with them and make, make things look as though we're the one who is the source of, of the goodness that came about and other people are just, you know, bleh. Um, we do all sorts of things to, you know, promote ourselves in our work, in our family, you know, even in the Dharma Center, you know, there's karma, you know, competition between people to get the attention of the teacher or to, um, you know, be the one, the honored student or the honored benefactor, or whatever like that. You know, always so much uh, looking at me, I, my, and mine. Okay? So we, what we do to get that, okay? So it brings the results in this life, some results in this life, dissatisfaction, sometimes guilt, in, you know, because we look at what we've done and how we've hurt other people to get what we want, and we feel really bad. Yeah. Um, and then what it also does by engaging in destructive actions is put the seeds of negative uh, karma on our mind and... Uh, and then that ripens in our future lives and what we experience. Yeah. So it's very helpful. Uh, whenever you have pain, when, whether it's mental pain or physical pain, yeah, to say, this is a result of the actions I've done in a previous life. Yeah. And if you make a habit of training your mind that way, yeah. First of all, y you stop blaming other people for your problems. But second of all, it acts as a reminder when you're about to do something that's not so nice and not so ethical. It acts as a reminder of, oh, if I do this action, I'm creating more karma to experience more of what I'm experiencing now, which I don't like. Okay. 
So it becomes uh, very helpful to help us uh, refrain from negativity. Okay, so verse 40, for the sake of whoever we are sexually attracted to, many requests are, are first of all made through Gobi trains. So in ancient India, yes, you know, you had a Gobi train. Jewish culture, you had your Yenta. Okay. Um, <laughs> by the way, a little aside. Um, I, as I went last week, I was uh, talking about yeah, yentas and marriage and stuff like that. My uh, ex-husband was watching the teaching. <laughs> because I know, because remember I gave the joke, the yenta with the herring? So I got an email saying, um, uh, and, and I meant this reference, uh, said maybe uh, a herring is used to get filter fish. I, I got an email saying no, a herring isn't used to get filter fish. Was from him, you know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so. For the sake of whoever we're attracted to, many requests are first of all made through go-betweens. So the go-between could be your app, you know, your dating app. It could be your friend who is going to introduce you to somebody else they know and fix you up, you know. But that's often how we meet. Your go-between could be a bar. It seems like that's how a lot of people meet people. Yeah. Um Okay, all forms of transgression and even notoriety are not avoided for their sake. Okay, so you're looking for somebody. Okay, so first of all, go be trains. And then in order to attract their attention, if you have to transgress precepts, you know, maybe they're looking for somebody rich. So you, you know, you cheat people in your business to get more wealth in order so that that person will be attracted to you. So all forms of transgression, notoriety, maybe they're looking for somebody, uh, again, who's famous and it doesn't matter which way you're famous. Uh, and so they, you know, again, um, maybe they, uh, you know, you, you do things in a gang to be the head of the gang to attract other people who are attracted to that kind of stuff. Okay. But the point is, you know, that motivated by this kind of desire, we will do almost anything to make ourselves attractive to who we want to be attractive to. Okay. So, for 41, I engage in fearful deeds for them and will even consume my wealth. But these very bodies of theirs, which I greatly enjoy in sexual embrace, okay, are nothing other than skeletons. They are not autonomous and are identityless. Rather than being so desirous and completely obsessed, why do I not go to the state beyond sorrow instead? 
slow to nirvana. Okay, so I engage in fearful deeds. Think of some of the stupid things you did when you were younger to be attractive or to get other people's attention. Okay, maybe speeding in cars. Yeah, going skinny dipping in inappropriate places. Handling weapons. Who knows? Yeah, it was an interesting thing to look at. Uh, what we, um, we, how we will sometimes put ourselves in danger in order to get other people's attention so that, you know, they want to be with us. Yeah, might sound strange, but just check up. Yeah, and look at society. Certainly we see that in society. Yeah. I find it so interesting to watch what, how people dress at these meta, you know, these, um, what do you call it? These, what? What? Metropolitan Gallup, yeah, Metropolitan what? Oscars. Yeah, the Oscars and any kind of award ceremonies where they have, where they have um, red carpets. Yeah, and the men and the women, you know, both stage themselves on the red carpets to be attractive. And I, I think now, what's going on in the mind? Yeah, I want people to look at my body and through my body think that I am a wonderful person, important person, worthwhile person. And so they dress up in ways, to me it looks like Halloween sometimes, you know? It really does. Uh, actually, one guy... Uh, because I look at these things, because for me it's a Dharma practice. Because I think, who, I mean, I think, what would I have to do to want people to look at me the way those events are designed to make people look at you? And it's like, I don't want people to look at me like that. So anyway, there's this one guy at some recent thing they had, he he was dressed up in in well first of all there was like a halo around him but it was all made of black spikes yeah and a a, a some kind of lower garment i don't know if it was pants or a skirt but again with these black spikes speaking sticking out yeah stood on the right red carpet, you know, and that however you're supposed to, you know, hold your body doing that. Some other guy in um, bright pink, a bright pink suit. Yeah. You know, and, and then the women, oh, then who was it? There was someone, some famous person. Her dress was only jewelry. There was no cloth in it. So she had jewelry and, you know, the, the, it was like just kind of, yeah, jewelry and chains, you know, and of course more clustered together at obvious places in your body. 
But that, you know, and I thought, I would never want people to look at me like that. I wondered that sometimes. Some of them, the skirts were so short. I thought, what? How how do you sit down? You know, Uh, and and like I, I would never ever want people to just stare at my body like that. Yeah, when I was a teenager, that's what I did. But I, you know, not now. Why did I do that as a teenager? You know, it was ridiculous. But I did it because that's what we were supposed to do. Stupid. Yeah. And almost got myself in some trouble sometimes, which are some stories which I won't tell you now. Okay. Uh, What? Um, okay, so I will engage in fearful deeds for them and will even consume my wealth. When people, you know, what do they do? You, you date somebody. Dating is expensive. Oh my goodness. You consume your wealth and you have to buy them flowers and, you know, jewelry and, um, you know, on the day that Princess Diana was killed. Yeah. Uh, Dodi, her lover, had, was going to propose for them to marry. And he had, they had agreed, they had only been dating a month. They had, uh, agreed, he had gotten her a ring that was, uh, six, a six figure ring. Yeah. So, Six figures in, in the price. I mean, how much? So spend all the money to get a ring. Yeah. But he didn't get a chance to propose because they both died in the accident. Um, yeah. But, but like, uh, yeah, courting people is quite expensive. And, uh, yeah. So, I will even consume my wealth. Okay. What are you consuming your wealth for? What are you engaging in t- fearful deeds for? Okay. Shanti Devas says, but these very bodies of theirs, which I greatly enjoy in the sexual embrace. Okay. So he takes you right there. You know, you do this and that and you greatly enjoy their body and sexual embrace. And then you have to turn the page. You know, and what does he say then? Are nothing other than skeletons. And you go, for that, I did dangerous things and I consumed my wealth. You go, no, they're not really skeletons. Oh, yeah? What's inside all of our bodies? Anybody here who doesn't have a skeleton inside their body? Yeah. Anybody here when, when we die, you know, the, this tissue will rot away, but the bones will be there? Yeah. 
Okay, so what we're craving are nothing more than skeletons. They are not autonomous and are identityless. Okay, they aren't autonomous and identityless. Uh, autonomous. Okay, they aren't autonomous people. Yeah, and they are identityless. Yeah, when you look, a skeleton. Does a skeleton have an identity? Yeah. If the skeleton, uh, you know, walks in the room, do you say, you know, hi, Sam. Yeah. Hi, Matilda. You look really good today. <laughs> yeah. When you go to Theravada monasteries, yeah, in Thailand especially, uh, at the entrance to the meditation hall, they'll, al- they'll often have a real skeleton. Not not a um, medical doctor, uh, you know, kind of plastic skeleton, but a real one. It's very effective, yeah, because you look and you see, oh, okay, that's what, at the end of the day, we all become. So what is there to get attached to? Yeah, there's no mind in the skeleton. There's no human identity, yeah, you wouldn't go up and cuddle with a skeleton. Yeah, actually be rather uncomfortable. You know, you'd get poked here and there. Okay, they're not autonomous individuals. They, they, the skeletons can't operate on their own. They need a mind. Okay. But even when there's a mind attached... Yeah. Where, where's the person? Yeah, you have a skeleton. You have a consciousness that comes into it. Yeah. We don't think, oh, there's just a, a skeleton and some flesh and a consciousness, and then that that's the person that, that I desire so much. Is we create a person in there, okay, based on the body and the mind, together we create a person. It's the person we're so attracted to. Yeah. Just the mind alone, you don't get turned on by somebody's mind. I I heard somebody told me of one uh, Star Trek something. You may may know of it. Um, Where somebody in, in, I don't know all the, Star Trek characters, but somebody in the the good guy's spaceship, um, uh, you know, got sent out to another universe. Oh, when they were in the good guy's spaceship, there there was some, you know, some flirting going on with somebody else in the spaceship, and they were like mm, falling in love, kind of stuff. And then one of them got went out in the universe to some other something. Yeah, and they had to adopt a a body that looked like that the people in that realm, which was just some kind of box like that. And so when this person then you know the you know here's this person that I was falling in love with, you know, and it's like they're just their body is a box. And then trying to go, but their mind was so wonderful. I I love them, but (laughs) 
I'm not in love with that box. And it really pointed out, you know, how much of this is based on the body and physical attraction, you know, even though we say they have such a wonderful mind. Okay. So, it's... Yes? Oh, what do you have there? And which version are you using? FPMT version. It says, talking about the skeleton, it's neither under your control nor belongs to you. Yeah. So well, that I- emphasizes like you're in control of it and that's your possession. Yeah. 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 It could emphasize under your, you can't control the other person. Yeah. You don't possess it. But our, whether it's our body or their body, it's not an autonomous thing. Yeah. And there's no identity in it. But that, that translation points out more specifically what the, he's talking about. Read it again. If they are nothing other than skeletons, rather than being so desirous and completely obsessed towards that which neither is under your control nor belongs to you, why do you not go to the state beyond sorrow? Yeah. Okay. So he's asking us, you know, we're, uh, you know, rather than being so desirous, okay, we acknowledge our desire, but completely obsessed, do we want to acknowledge when we're, our mind is completely obsessed with something? No. But when you're falling in love, what is your mind obsessed with? Yeah. The other person. And, you know, thinking how wonderful they are. And, you know, finally somebody who understands me, who encourages me, who sees my good qualities. Oh, is going to be, you know, and your mind is in la-la land, even you're not with that person. Yeah, Am I right or wrong? Have we all had that experience? Yeah. Yeah. So the mind is obsessed. It is obsessed, isn't it? Yeah. And you daydream. Oh, when are they going to ask me out? Where are they going to take me? And then you fantasize all this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, there was one person who wrote to me who was keeping celibate, but saying, oh, but sometimes, you know, I just want to relax. So I do a visualization. Well, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, you want to be celibate. Do you really want to be celibate? You know, if that's what you enjoy doing in your spare time. Okay, so Shandideva is saying rather than, you know, letting our mind get so whacked out in that way, why don't we go to the state beyond sorrow? Why don't we attain nirvana where we will have a peaceful mind, a joyful mind, a mind that isn't obsessed, yeah, that isn't always comparing and contrasting and what's better and what's worse and in all the different ways that we do that, yeah? Why not? Because what he's saying is we put so much energy 
into attracting somebody and being attractive to someone else. If we put that kind of energy into our spiritual practice, we might get somewhere. Yeah? But we get distracted instead. Okay, now, verse 43, now we're getting into the the really gooey stuff, you know. And remember here, it's a heterosexual man looking at a heterosexual woman, an ancient, well, it's not ancient, this is our culture too. In the first place, I make efforts to lift her veil. And when it is raised, she bashfully looks down. That's what you're supposed to do, remember? You know, women, yeah, he lifts your veil. You bashfully look down. And you just go like this. And you look so delicate and fragile. That makes him love you more. You know? And then he looks down, and there you are. He feels, oh, I'm so strong. I will protect her. I'm a man. Boo. <laughs> okay. I mean, this plays into it, isn't it? This is what we see in the movies. Previously, yeah. So that's the first two lines of the romantic part. Then, previously, whether anyone looked or not, her face was covered with a cloth. Yeah? Because... um Usually in those times, you know, well, even today you see Indian women very often. I mean, their heads are often covered with a scarf, and sometimes it's cold. You bring it across your face, something like that. Okay, her face was covered with a cloth. Yet now, okay, why do I run away upon directly beholding this face which disturbs the mind So you're thinking, oh, yeah, which disturbs the mind. Wow, how much does it look when I'm going to run away? As it is revealed to me by the vultures. So this face that you thought was so beautiful and so romantic and so desirable, you know, and each of you are playing your roles as you're taught by society. But when you directly behold it, You know, when the person is dead and they're lying in a cemetery, is it so beautiful? Okay. So in ancient India and in many other cultures, they don't do what we do here. You know, here, you know, most, most cultures in the States, not all of them, they embalm the bodies. Yeah. And I went to the funeral of one of my friend's uh, mothers who had a long, really debilitating disease. And it was an open casket uh, funeral. And people were saying, oh, I've never seen her look so good in years. Because the way they embalm the body, she looked so much better than when she was alive. That's kind of sick, isn't it? When you look better lying in the casket than you do when you're alive? What does that say about our society? Okay, so 
in ancient India, you know, who had embalming things and they didn't do it. You wrap the body in a cloth and you put it in the, in the charnel grounds. And then often, uh, I don't know, I don't know if they really buried the bodies that much because it sounds like animals used to come and just eat the bodies in the charnel grounds, you know, and in Tibet. They had special people who chopped up. They took the body way high up in the mountains, chopped it up a bit, and then left it for the vultures, you know, so that at the end of your life, you made an offering of your body to, to the sentient beings who could benefit from it. Okay. So, the, so why do I run away upon directly beholding this face, you know? which was so beautiful and everything was so romantic. Yeah. But now it disturbs the mind when I look at it as it's being revealed to me by the vultures. Yeah. So this is really good when you're attracted to somebody. Imagine what they look like when they're dead, when the vultures have eaten part of their body. And if your mind goes, well, I'm not going to look like that when I'm dead. Well, if that's your case and you're a monastic at the Abbey, then you better put in a request for special handling right now. Because we have a plot of earth designated as a cemetery, you know, out in Manjushri's meadow. We can show you where it is. Uh, Venerable Deki even uh, plotted the the uh, points in it, yeah. Uh, and wh what we intend to do, you know, dig holes, wrap the body, uh, in some, you know, you wrap it in the chugu and another piece of cloth if you need. And we're just going to put the body in, in the hole, cover up the hole, and let it decay. Yeah, so no beautiful caskets, no embalming, no, you know, um, uh, cremation actually is very bad for the environment. So uh, that that's how we intend to do it. So if any of you don't want your precious body disposed of that way, uh, then file a special request and we will follow your request. Okay, but you pay for it. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Now, some people care about the way they look at their funeral. Yeah. But if we care about that, again, we have to look at why do I care about what I look like after I'm dead? It's only a body. It's not me. My mind is somewhere else. I have no relationship with that body anymore. Why do I care about what it looks like? Why do I care about what people say about it? Why do I care if they have a beautiful funeral for me or they don't? Okay. In the, the uh, 10 innermost jewels of the Kadampa tradition, yeah, they talk a lot about that. And, uh, you know, being willing to die, even to the extent that nobody even knows you're dead, so nobody even misses you. Yeah. A 
And, and, you know, are you okay with that? If that's how you should die. Nobody even knows. Now here, you know, in the, t- in the ten innermost jewels of the Kadampas, they're talking about somebody who is, you know, a hermit, and so, you know, their friends don't know where they are and so on. But if you think, um, like in the war right now between Ukraine and Russia, yeah, there are all sorts of people, especially, I mean, young Russian soldiers that just are not going home and their parents don't know if they're dead or alive. And their bodies sometimes are not all in one piece. piece. And, you know, sometimes Ukraine, sh- is, you know, they put the body in a body bag and ship it back to Russia. Other times they have to bury it right there. Other times there's only body parts. And this is for the, not only the Russians, but also the Ukrainians, you know. So, yeah, uh, would we be okay with that happening to our body? Or do we, you know, want to be memorialized and... You know, have a nice plaque, you know, with a with a picture of us. Yeah, not a picture of what we looked like when we before we died, but a picture of what we looked like when we were sixteen, you know, or twenty, something like that. You know, as if we got frozen in good looks at that age. But but how do we feel about that? So very helpful. Um, I think to, uh, to take walks in, uh, in cemeteries and look at the plaques of the people and think about their lives and how long they lived. And some people not living very long and some people living very long, but at the end of the day, they're all under that ground. Yeah. And okay, you have beautiful, you know, there's some where the graves are unmarked. They don't know who it is. And then there's some where there's a big, beautiful carved tombstone. And then there's some with family plots, you know, like Trump on the, what, you know, on his golf course. I forget which whole, whole of his, first hole. Yeah. So part, part of the the land. This is how you get a tax deduction because it's, it's, you pay less taxes if it's a cemetery. So it's mostly a golf course, but if it's, you call it a cemetery because there's one plot of land for the Trump family. And that's where he buried his first wife who died recently. Now, I don't know how the second wife and the third wife feel about that. You know, are they going to? There's not much there but brown dirt, so I'm not sure they want to be there either. Yeah, well, no, there's there's grass. Oh, that's good. There's grass. Beautiful, because it's a golf course. You've got to have beautiful green growth. <laughs> yeah, put it on your nose. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, you know, are they going to line the wives up in order? One, two, three? <laughs> or is he going to be in the middle somewhere? Uh, yeah. But people care about this kind of thing. So the but the point is, do we care about it? And if we do, what what is going on in our mind? You know, what are we thinking? 
Okay. Previously, I completely protected, it says her body, but the body of whoever we're attracted to. Previously, I completely protected his, her, its body when others cast their eyes upon it. Why, miser, do you not protect it now while it is being devoured by these birds? So when the person was alive, you know, when others looked at them, since they were the object of your desire, you didn't want anybody else to look at them. Okay. So, yes, ancient societies, I mean, in Islam, this is one of the reasons why the women are covered. Okay. But what it's revealing is the possessiveness that we have about whoever it is we think is attractive or whoever we fall in love with. They are mine. Nobody else can look at them. Nobody else can flirt with them. Nobody else can have a long uh, conversation with them. Yeah, because they're mine and I get jealous. Okay, so this is a lot, that kind of thing is alive and well in this country, isn't it? Yeah, if you're attracted to someone and so on and somebody else is coming in to the scene who they may be attracted to more, yeah, okay. So previously, I completely protected their body, you know, their body is mine, I protect it. Yeah, when uh, when others cast their eyes upon it, you know, nobody else can look at this, the person that I'm so attracted to and who I'm in love with. Yeah, but when they're dead and their body's lying there in the charnel ground and the birds are eating it, why don't we protect it then? In fact, why do we find it so horrific then? It's the same body. It's a continuation of the body that we were so attracted to. That's what the body eventually becomes, doesn't it? Yeah, it either becomes, you know, a, a corpse, and in in the um, uh, establishment of mindfulness on the body, there's a whole meditation on corpses and the the colors they turn as they decay, you know. Why don't I find that so beautiful? Why don't I try and, you know, I don't want anybody to look at them while they're alive, but uh, I don't even want to look at them when they're dead. It seems rather strange, doesn't it? It's the same body. Okay, 46, since vultures and others are eating this pile of meat that I behold. Yeah, Shantideva doesn't. He, he just says it the way it is. I'm surprised that he doesn't say this pile of rotten meat that I behold, because at that point it is rotting. Okay. Since vultures and others are eating this, the, the others, you know, coyotes, foxes, wolves, whatever, yeah, dogs. Since vultures and others are eating this pile of meat that I behold, 
Why did I offer flower garlands, sandalwood, and ornaments? Again, row back to the romantic thing of offering these beautiful things that, you know, makes that person love you more, or, you know, if you're the one that's being offered to, makes you love them more. Yeah. But, uh, you know, why did I offer all those beautiful things? And, you know, with my eyes dazzled in how their wonder uh, to that which is now the food of others. Okay? So do you see how he's doing it? He's, he's throwing us into the, the romantic vision, which we go into and how beautiful they are and the emotions that come up. And then next line, but this is what it becomes. And why do you not have the same feeling for it that as you did before? It's just the continuum of what you were so attracted to before. If I am frightened by the skeletons I see, even though they do not move, why am I not frightened by walking corpses? which are moved around by a few impulses. Okay. This is Halloween. Yeah, except in Halloween, it's pretend skeletons that walk up and say, trigger treat. But imagine, yeah, if I'm frightened by skeletons, like, you know, have you seen pictures of the, the tombs in Italy of the, the various monks? Yeah, have you seen those where all the s skeletons, the cap capuchins? Yeah, capuchin monks. And, you know, and the skeletons are beautifully preserved and laid out in ordination order. Yeah, one next to the other. Uh, and, and, you know, and tourists, you can buy a ticket and go down and, and look at, at, at all of them. Okay. But some people, I think, get really frightened when they see skeletons. You know, when you see a real skeleton. Of course, those, you know, they're kind of sanitized skeletons. I think they're probably more scary when some flesh is still on them. Because scan the, the, when they're all cleaned up like that, then it's easier to think this is like what the doctors have, you know, the plastic ones. It looks like plastic skeletons. Well, except you can kind of tell they're human bones. But, you know, uh, but when there's still bits and pieces of the flesh there and the smell is still there, so if I am frightened by the skeletons I see, even though they do not move. Yeah. Imagine at funerals you had to go and, and, and look. And, you know, there was somebody's skeleton with little bits and pieces there of flesh. Even though they do not move, I'm scared of them. Why am I not frightened by walking corpses? That's what living people are. That's what we are, walking corpses. Why am I not frightened by walking corpses 
which are moved around by a few impulses. Yeah, so why does our body move? There is an impulse, an intention in the mind that, you know, why does this body move? There's intention, yeah? Are you scared of this body, this hand moving? Yeah, oh, well, no, because there's a person there and they're talking to you. And, you know, the skin makes it look all nice. Yeah, well... The skin is a little bit old-looking nowadays. It kind of looks like my grandma's skin and broken nails and wrinkles and freckles. and It, it doesn't look like... Good thing I didn't have daughters. We'd never do a mother-daughter um, commercial for, for um, Dawn... Um, hand, hand, you know, dishwashing thing. You remember seeing those commercials... Yeah, this dishwashing uh, agent is so mild that here's the mother's hands and here's the daughter's hands and you can't tell the difference even though the mother washes all the difference because the dishes because this detergent is so mild, so go buy it. Yeah, did all of you see those commercials? Yeah, are they, or were they just with the dinosaur generation? Yeah, you saw them? No? You didn't see the... Oh, yeah. Okay, no. The, the younger ones behind are going, oh, I didn't... You didn't see... Oh, we should, you know, get them out. Oh, yes. Yeah, the mother-daughter thing where you can't tell the difference. And okay. Yeah. So why am I not frightened by walking corpses which are moved around by a few impulses? Okay, this is a few minutes for uh, questions and comments. I'd like to share a new technology in tombstones that you, you might not be familiar with, but I think you'll enjoy. And I saw this in kind of rural Michigan, so maybe a decade or more ago more than a decade ago, um, these you know tombstones would have color pictures on them, like engravings that have been colored in of people's dogs and their trucks, maybe their shotgun. Like, so as you walked through the cemetery, you really <laughs> kind of knew what sort of, of like, you know, highway truck, like, you know, shipping truck mm-hmm. they, had, they had driven. And apparently that was what they wanted people to know about them after mm-hmm. they died. Okay. So we're going to all have pictures of the Buddha Hall. (laughs) I will confess that as I sat watching my mother die and her body started changing colors, it was a little freaky. Mm. And um, luckily nothing dramatic, terribly dramatic happened. But um, there was some fear that was arising in my mind, like I was going to see something that would, yeah, it was just interesting to, See what was there. Yeah. 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 Because, yeah, when the oxygen starts getting, stops getting spread around, the body changes colors. And it gets stiff very soon afterwards. So this person who you thought, you know, that you can move their hand around, now rigor mortis is there. You can't move it. Yeah. 
Some years ago, I think during COVID, there was a series of celebrity suicides uh, in Korea and Japan, and they were all around my age. And reading about, so I was, you know, quite surprised. And of course, the photos they put up of the celebrities, they look so happy. Um, but basically, their career was over by the time they were 35. They were mm-hmm. over the hill mm-hmm. and completely depressed. And what was kind of shocking and offensive was that one of the women was best remembered for wearing barely nothing on the red carpet. So that was the photo of that was all over the place. That was her calling card. It was really sad. And she was a suicide? Yeah. So together with the most recent photo of her on social media or something, next to that was all these photos of her in that little barely there dress. And it's like, this, this is how we remember her. Oh, it was really sad. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Who has not seen a dead body? In person, anybody? Ah, okay. Yeah, it's quite something when when you see it in person, and especially if you're with somebody who, when they die. Um, in the Theravada tradition, they uh, the monks would often go to um, what do they call? Yeah, mortuary. No, um, no. When you dissect it, um, uh, what am I? Autopsy. Thank you. Yeah, they would. You know, you would go to autopsy as a way of you know looking at dead bodies and then looking at what is inside the the body. So when I was in Thailand, um, the abbot arranged for us to to go to to see one autopsy i have pictures of it if people want want to see um yeah do you have them on your computer okay okay yeah i also have pictures of what the bodies looked like after the tsunami in um again i think it's bodies in thailand yeah and they often would have the body yeah, when it was people drowned in the tsunami, and so the bodies are bloated, um, and they would have the body, and they had to identify all these bodies. They don't know who the people were. And they, when they did, they would put the ID card next to the body, and you'd look at the ID card, and you look at the body, and it's like, wow, big difference. But if people want to see these pictures, let me know. I've... I've kept them, yeah. And uh, remind me, I'll tell you the story of going to the autopsy. It's an interesting one. I think one of the most profound when I was with Jane, it was like after she died, you're looking at this body in this bed, and then you're suddenly realizing how much you have imputed on these parts that are all diseased and gone, that you have imputed somebody that you loved and cared for. And then you look at that and you go, where are you? Because you see the body and they are not there. Yeah. But all of the projection, all of the attachment, all of the memories on that corpse in the bed is astoundingly graphic. I mean, it really hits you in the face. Yeah. And yet, 
you, you have all that projected on that, and there's nobody there. Not even before the death, but it's more apparent that there's <laughs> yeah. nobody there after the death. After but. the death, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's dedicate. 